All right, well, go ahead and find yourself a Bible, and if you didn't bring one with you, there is a black hardback around you. We are going to be in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we've been traveling through Isaiah for quite some time. We took a break in there for a couple months, and now we're back into it. And we're in chapter 25, and uh, like I said last week, we're in a section that is kind of a capstone to chapters 13 through 23. And so 24 through 27 is kind of acting as that capstone on kind of the themes that are there. And uh, last week was this idea of judgment upon the whole earth. And today, what we will see is what I think we could just simply say that we should praise God. There's some amazing things that are here, and I'll give you four things out of this chapter that we should praise God about. Now, <clears throat> over 30 times in the book of Psalms, uh, it tells us to rejoice in God's faithfulness over 30 different times. In Psalm 92, as a good example of this, in verses 1 and 2, it tells us to, to be giving thanks uh, by day and by night. Look at these first two verses of Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So rejoicing in the Lord should be something that should come easy to us. It should be uh, kind of a natural feeling that we have because we've experienced the amazing grace of our Lord and Savior. But I would assume, like me, you may not always feel that. It may not always feel like it is something that is natural to you and that it is more of a fight for myself, I know there are times and issues in my life or maybe a sin that is there that is causing a disconnect and the fact that I don't really feel this instant or natural rejoicing in the Lord, it takes real effort, it takes real intentionality for that to then come out of me, to really praise God. And maybe that was you this morning as we're singing songs, as we're praying, that, that it's really like an intentional like, thing that you have to aim at in order for you to get to that place. Or maybe you were just already there uh, because of preparations earlier in the morning or even last night that you are ready to praise the Lord this morning. You know, there's different things that, that can help me praise God, and sometimes it's just a song that uh, triggers in my mind a freeing thought and frees me of my own selfish thinking and selfish situation, and it moves me into a place of worship and praise. Sometimes it's moments when I'm just in creation, and I, and I, I look around and see how good God is and how great He is, and it triggers a thankful thought and praise in my mind. Other times, it is when I maybe read a verse of Scripture, a passage of Scripture, and it, and it triggers something in my mind of praising God. And so, of the aspects in which we include into our Sunday mornings of prayer, of Scripture reading, of song, these are all there to help trigger praise in your heart and move you toward a praise of God. Now, this chapter that we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, I think has some trigger points in it for us to really trigger the praise of God that should be happening in our lives. And in chapter 4, 24, as I said, Isaiah has given us this picture, this synopsis of the end of days, and it gave us just a glimpse, just a glimmer of hope for the remnant of God. A very small glimmer of that, but in this chapter, it is filled with hope for that remnant people. And as I said, there's four things that I want you to, to maybe walk away with this morning, as I think Isaiah is pointing out that we should be praising God for. 
And I think we should focus our attention on these four things this morning. So the first one being in verse 1, and that we should praise God for carrying out His plans. Look at verse 1 of chapter 25 of Isaiah. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name. For You have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Notice the first words that are here about Isaiah's personal relationship with the Lord. As he says, O Lord, you are my God. Yes, he is the God of Judah. Yes, he is the God of Israel. But he is specifically the God of Isaiah. Do you know him personally? Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord? Because it is your personal relationship that is really important that leads to your worship of him. If you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord, you probably won't praise the Lord. Now, we should not be surprised when non-believers curse God, scoff at God, make fun of God, or ignore God. But this should be surprising to us when we hear Christians talk about not wanting to praise the Lord, not wanting to fulfill His commands, not wanting to, to be in relationship with Him. This should be concerning to us. And hopefully that is concerning to you when you hear things like that. There's so much for us to be grateful for and to praise God for in our lives, as Stephen pointed out. Just so many things that maybe we don't even think about. But if someone has become cynical in their relationship with the Lord, then they're going to struggle to praise Him. And maybe this is what's happened to you. Maybe you've become a bit cynical with God, and this is the fight that you have, that you're now fighting against the cynicism that has taken root in your heart, and it has invaded every aspect of your life, and now what you need is something to overcome that. But it is almost impossible, if not impossible, for you to overcome cynicism on your own. And this is why we need other things. We need each other to help us fight through these doubts, this disease of doubt. And we need Scripture to help us do that as well. Let me, let me just point you to one. Maybe you already have this memorized. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, where it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. You know the rest. Great is your faithfulness. Or the King James, thy faithfulness, right? Well, We need to be constantly reminded of this truth, of God's faithfulness. As the psalmist repeats over 30 times, we should praise Him for His faithfulness. But faithful to what exactly? Faithful to what? What what does that even mean? Praise Him for His faithfulness. Well, as Isaiah says here in verse 1, he tells us that we should praise Him for the carrying out of His plans which is what Isaiah has been highlighting throughout these past few chapters. But it gets even clearer for us about the praising of the Lord for His plans in chapter 46 of Isaiah in verse 10, where he says these words, "...declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose." What does that teach us? about God. I think it teaches us that He has crafted a perfect plan for the universe, and that plan was to maximize His glory. That is the reason for the plan. 
He formed this plan out of his eternality, meaning he is eternal, out of his perfect wisdom, out of his omnipotence and his omniscience. Which means that there was not a plan A and a plan B, nor was there any other variant of a plan. But there is always one plan. Just one. Also, because God is immutable, which means unchanging, His plans follow suit. They are unchanging. There's no need for God to learn something new. And if He did learn something new, then He wouldn't be omniscient, right? So there's no need for Him to learn something new or even to adjust Himself to a new situation. From God's perspective, there is no new situations because all of human history was completed in God's mind before He spoke anything into creation. He's not calculating outcomes like some supercomputer up in the sky, figuring out, well, what's the best thing to do here? He decreed the end from the beginning, as Isaiah 46.10 tells us, meaning the course of history was set before there was history. He determined it. And the timeline of human history has been filled and fraught with awful, terrible things, has it not? We see this throughout history. We've seen this through Isaiah's uh, recording of Israel's history of just one bad thing after another, one seeming misstep and sin and all these things just again and again and again. And it seems like that people are trying to throw monkey wrenches into God's plans. It seems like God is going to have His plans derailed by people. This seems to be the case as we have just finished reading through Genesis where we see this issue and that issue and, and this family dynamic and, and this situation. And, but what did we end with this morning from Genesis 50? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. How does that work? Well... You really have to be God to fully understand what that means. But I think simply how we could say it is that God's plans can't be derailed. They can't be detoured. God is the sovereign Lord. There is nothing that is too great for Him to overcome or anything that He did not already plan for. Every sequence of history has been precisely executed according to God's eternal plans. And I believe this is what Isaiah has been communicating to us about God and His eternal decree, His eternal purpose. Now, there's a whole lot of comfort here in that if you would be humble enough to receive it. What I mean by that is that the Lord has never failed in the execution of His plans, not one single time. To the most microscopic level in the entirety of the universe, God has not failed to execute His plan. So, what makes you think, Christian, that He is not going to fulfill His promise to you? What makes you think that, no, he, he's, he's forgotten about me, He doesn't care about me, he doesn't, he doesn't want these things for me. Yes, I know He said it, I know He promised this, but I don't think He's going to do it. 
there's not one single thing in the universe in which he has failed in. He will carry out his plans. His plans will be accomplished. And his plans are what? Look at verse 1 again. What have they done? What are they accomplishing? Look at right in the middle of that. Wonderful things. What are his plans going to do? They're going to accomplish wonderful things. And so why should we praise God? We should praise God for his carrying out of his plans. And he has been faithful to them. He is unlike anyone you have ever known. The relationship that you have with him should be unlike any other relationship that you have because he is the most truthful and faithful individual in all of the universe. He is reliable. So we should praise God for the carrying out of his plans. The second thing is in the next couple verses here, two through five, that we should praise God for converting nations. Look at verse two. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of the ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Now we have seen repeatedly through these last few chapters that God has made promises to other nations. And what has His promise been to them? That He is going to save people out of those nations. Now let's be reminded that these other nations are not good people. They are not righteous people. They are pagan. They are wicked. They are evil. And God made a promise to them to save them. In verse 3, it says that the strong and the ruthless people are going to be God-fearing. They will be God-glorifying people. This is not who they were, but it is who they are going to be. There's a new relationship that's going to be formed there. And in verse 4, Look there, it mentions the poor and the needy. They they are finding strength in the Lord. They didn't have it, but now they do. And the imagery of the Lord being a stronghold, a shelter, and a shade. You see that repeat there? A stronghold, shelter, and a shade. This should invoke a sense of protection and comfort from God. Now think about this from the perspective of Christians who live in places or in nations that hate Christians. How would they read this and take comfort? Because a lot of the times, because of our context where we live, there's not a whole lot of threat upon our life, not a lot of threat upon our strongholds or our shelter or our shade. And usually our shelter, shade, strongholds are not placed in God but in other things. What about Christians in these other contexts? Well, just the other day in Ethiopia, there were three churches that were burnt to the ground by Muslim extremists. How might those churches read Isaiah 25 and take heart and be encouraged in this? I think a way in which they could read this and understand this is that they might be encouraged that no matter the shelter and the shades or the strongholds of this physical world, if they are all burnt to the ground, that they don't have to lose hope because God is still with them. He is the everlasting shelter that they have, the everlasting shelter that they need. He will provide the eternal protection for them 
that they desperately need, and they can have joy in their hearts even though they have no roof over their head. They can take heart in the promises of God. In verse 5, notice, we are given the picture of God hushing, silencing the song of the violent and the ruthless people of the earth. How does he do this? Two ways. Two ways in which he does this. One being that he converts them. He converts them. So just like what happened to the Apostle Paul, if you remember the story, as he's, as he's raging and waging war on the early church, and he's, he's dragging people off to prison, he's having people executed because of their faith in Jesus Christ, he's violent against the church, he has made it his mission to eradicate the church, and then he's on, his ro- on the road to Damascus on his high horse, and Jesus literally kicks him off to the ground it says, Saul, Saul, why, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, he is he's converted. He has changed. He is submissive to Jesus, which should give us a great hope for those that we have thought to be too far gone to be saved. And you, you know, you have these people in your life. Maybe you have somebody in your mind right now. As I say that, they're too far gone. And you think, no, I've shared the gospel multiple times, like they've been hurt, they've been wounded somehow, and there's just no way. Or you think, they're just so violent, they're so ruthless, they're so awful. You have the same mindset of Jonah about the people of Nineveh. You're like, there's no way, and I don't even want them to know who God is. This is an evil place to be in your heart if you have those thoughts. I think in this, we, we have hope for these people. These people that we think are are just too far gone, this should also give us a fuel in our hearts to to go to people groups that are unsafe and are violent. God is going to save people out of those places. He's promised to do so. He has given us examples of doing that such thing. Let me give you an example of this. Author John Piper writes about a, a couple who would face an extremely dangerous group of people. He writes, It wasn't until 1606 that Spanish explorer Fernandez de Corres discovered a chain of 80 islands stretched across 450 miles in the South Pacific, later named the New Hebrides. The islands were inhabited by peoples whose existence had been unknown to the rest of the world for centuries. It would be another 230 years before two London missionaries made the first earnest attempt to bring the gospel to these unengaged and unreached peoples in 1839. But they were killed and eaten by cannibals only minutes after going ashore. John G. Patton and his wife set sail to the islands in 1858. But this decision did not come without criticism. On one account, before leaving, a respected elder chided the couple, You will be eaten by cannibals! To which Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I 
uh, can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. <laughs> Today, as in the year 2000 when this was written, 93 years after the death of John Patton, about 85% of the population of Vanuatu identifies itself as Christian. Perhaps 21% of the population being evangelical. Why did they go? Why did the first two missionaries go? Why did John G. Patton and his wife go? Because they believed in the promises of God. They believed that He would save people who are violent and who are worthless. Well, that's true. But ruthless, that's the word I was looking for. They're violent, evil, wicked, pagan, but God promises he will save. So God will hush the song of the ruthless by converting them, and he might just use you to do it. You might be the one or two that go. And maybe you're thinking, hmm, cannibalism, that's not really a thing anymore, right? Well, that is, it still happens. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I, I don't think, I don't really have any desire to go across the world and, and to set sail to some new island. Well, here, here's an idea. What about the local jail? What about prison? Are they not violent and ruthless people? Maybe, maybe this is what God is calling you into, is into that situation. Will God not save people out of those places as well? I believe so. The other way that God will silence the ruthless and the violent is that He will crush them. He will crush them. Either He will convert them or He will crush them, which is what chapter 24 highlights and also the last verses 10 through, uh, 10 through 12 here tell us in this chapter. Every song of the violent, they will be completely silenced by our Lord and there will be no more violence against God's people. So, the, so the, the judgment of God crushing and silencing the song of these people is for the good of God's people, the remnant people of God. Whether that be by converting them or by crushing them, either way, God gets the last word. God wins. He always wins. He never loses. So we should praise Him for converting the nations and praise Him that He is still doing that today. And He still wants to use you to do that today. The third thing that we should praise God for is praise God for consuming death. Look at verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. 
These verses right here are the clearest verses in the Old Testament about the resurrection from the dead. The promise that Jesus made in the New Testament, it goes back to here. The clearest passage that we have about the resurrection from the dead. Now, during Jesus' day, there was two groups that you read about again and again in the Gospels, and we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of wealthy, upper-class individuals who rejected the idea of a bodily resurrection. They actually rejected any kind of idea in regards to a supernatural world or anything after this life. And this is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> right? That's good. It's good. Okay, all right. We're moving on. I, I think... There are a lot of Sadducees today, not because of their economic status, but because of their theological views. And I think some of these people have, some of them would even call themselves Christians, and I think this is really, it doesn't make any sense to me why they could even claim this, but I know people have talked about this in this way. There is an afterlife. And there must be an afterlife if there is a God, especially a God that is described in the Bible. There must be justice done for what has been done in this life. And if there is no justice, then the God of the Bible, He's a liar, and He's not trustworthy. There has to be justice in order for God to be a loving God who cares about what has been done to people who are His image bearers. And most importantly, the love that He has for Himself. The lack of an afterlife would mean that you don't have to give an account for how you've lived your life now, which means that you could and you should live a life of anarchy and of self-indulgence. Do whatever you want, however much you want which a lot of people do live their life this way. They do live a life of self-indulgence, but they seem to push aside the anarchy thing because there's laws that kind of govern them and, and they don't get to embrace the wickedness of their hearts, thankfully. All of this is tied to the understanding that there is and must be an afterlife, but we, just, we don't have the time to really unpack all of this idea this morning. So here in these verses, we are promised that God is going to consume the thing that will consume everyone someday. And what is that thing? Death. Death is coming. Which should encourage us to see that God is greater than the greatest enemy that we have, death. There's nothing greater than our God. Nothing. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it teaches us that sin and death spread throughout all of humanity by one man, and his name was Adam. This is why everyone is in the same position before God. We are guilty before Him. All have sinned because we came from a lineage of sinners, namely Adam and Eve. We were brought forth in iniquity, as David would say, because we are born after this man, Adam. Now, in Romans 5, it also tells us that we do not have to stay in this condemnation or under the condemnation of God and face the consequence of that, and that is eternal death. And why is this, as Romans 5 says, it is because of Jesus Christ, what Bryce read earlier. 
So just as we were born into this world coming from the lineage of Adam, we must be born again, as Jesus says, by the Holy Spirit to be put into another family line that is righteous before God. So two families, one unrighteous, one righteous. You're born into this one, you must be born again into this one. If someone is not born again, then they're still under the curse of sin, and they will face eternal death. For all who have been born again, death has been swallowed up because of what Jesus did on the cross by taking your sin upon himself. Do you remember in the garden when Jesus was praying, let this cup pass from me? What was in the cup? It was the wrath and condemnation of God. What did he drink for you? Your wrath, your condemnation. Why are you free from that? Because Jesus drank the cup. And how much of the cup did he drink? All of it. All of it. This is why you can be free from your sin and the consequence of your sin eternally. It is him. Now let me take a side note here because I think this is also something that maybe some of you are thinking about, debating, and having conversations with people about, and that is about Adam. What I just shared about Adam and the nature that we have inherited from him is why a historical Adam must be part of your theology. It is a must-have in your theological views. If Adam was only symbolic, as some people would claim and teach, then we don't have a sin problem and we don't really need Jesus. If Adam was only one of many other men or women on the earth, as in, well, there's other people besides Adam and Eve that were in the garden, and it's possible that really your lineage is not under the curse of sin, but from somebody else. And so again, you don't need Jesus. You have a different line of humanity. But the Scriptures testify, the Scriptures teach us that everyone on earth has the same earthly father, Adam. Adam means man. It means humanity. If you want to get to a clear picture in English, it means humanity. So Adam is a type, as Romans 5, as what Bryce read earlier, indicates to us that yes, he is a type of the one that has to come, but he is the representative of or the, the head of humanity. This is a really important thing because all come under that same curse that Adam had which means we're all in the same place. Everyone has the same need of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Everyone has the same problem. So don't buy into changes to a historical real person named Adam because what that does, it erodes away the foundation of salvation through Jesus Christ. Adam must be in your theology. Now let's get back to Isaiah 25 and the track that I was on here. When Jesus took on your sin on the cross, when he drank the cup to give you eternal life, when this happened, Christian, understand, you might suffer death on this earth, pretty likely, but you will not suffer eternal death because he drank the cup. The wording, look at verse 8, look at verse 8, swallowing of death, this gives us a picture that it is completely consumed. It is not some other picture that is painted here about what God is going to do with death. It's not like, well, God took a portion, 
or he took a piece, or he took a sip. No, he swallows death, which means it's forever defeated. And what the believer is promised is a feast. It's a feast where there is nothing but joy, nothing but happiness. Now contrast that back with chapter 24, where there could be no peace, there could be no rest, there could be no joy, there could be no happiness because of the condemnation of God coming upon the earth. It was only that remnant that was pulled out of that that could actually be what we see in, verse, in chapter 25, of this great joy, of this great feasting together with God, this new relationship with God. And at this feast, there will be no weeping, every tear will be wiped away, which, which sounds like this is a personal, intimate interaction between you and God. That's amazing, is it not? That you have a personal interaction with your Savior. What an amazing thing. Notice that this feast is for, in verse 6, all peoples. All peoples. Not meaning that everyone on earth is going to get into heaven and experience this. We, we know that is not the case. This is not universal atonement. But the promises we have seen repeatedly through Isaiah about God creating a remnant out of all these other nations, all these other peoples, all the wicked ones, all the evil ones, all the violent ones, all the ruthless ones. He's saving people out of those. And what will God do with them? He will welcome them to the family table. You're about to be welcomed to a table in just a few minutes. As we do that, think about how God is welcoming you together into a table that will be in the future where we will all eat together. We will praise God together. All the different backgrounds, all the different things that you went through in your life, circumstance, situation, God is calling us and bringing us into this great feast. Why? Because He has consumed death. He has consumed death, and you are welcomed around the family table. Why should we praise God? It's because of those things. The fourth and final that we have out of this chapter is in verses 10 through 11, that we should praise God for condemning the arrogant. Praise God for condemning the arrogant. Look at verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill, and he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim but the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands in the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to the dust. What a strange way to end the chapter, right? The imagery that we have here of Moab symbolized as a swimmer drowning in poo. That's a great picture, isn't it? Moab is symbolic. It's symbolic of all of God's enemies. And what will happen to those enemies? They will drown as if a, a septic tank truck backed up and just dumped on the top of them. That's some imagery, isn't it? And they're trying to swim their way out of that. This is what will happen to all those who oppose God. Their end will be just like this picture. In verse 11, 
Look at this. Those who are filled with pompous pride, these are the ones that this will happen to. These are the ones that will suffer this kind of fate. The arrogant will not be welcomed into the city of peace. They will not be tolerated in the kingdom of God. There is no place for them. And, and their trust that they've had in their skill sets or in other things, such as, as it mentions here, their fortifications, all of these things will fail. And they will, they will be under this condemnation from God and they will suffer this eternal humiliation. What will pride get you? A swimming pool of poo. Why is there praise to God for condemning the arrogant? Why should we praise God for that? Because pride is the root of all sin. It has been called the great enemy of God. It was pride that led to the fall of humanity, and pride has led to more disunity and more fighting than anything else. Why is there quarreling? Why is there turmoil in your relationships? Pride. And why won't you admit that? Your pride. Why is, why is this the case? What has been the cause of all divorce? Well, at the root of that is pride. Again, whether we want to admit that or not, it's pride. Pride rips relationships apart. And not just our earthly relationships, but our relationship with God. And what is the silver bullet for pride? Humility. What kills pride? Humility. The famous Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards, he, he, he says this, Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. You, you want to be out of the devil's reach? Be humble. Be humble. Humility is the only right response to God. It, it's the only right response that we have with God. If we look back to verse 1, we see Isaiah's relationship with the Lord. This is the starting point of all of this. And it's out of this relationship that drives him to praise God. And if, and if he wasn't humble, he wouldn't respond this way to God. And why was he humble before God? Well, if you remember back to chapter 6, where Isaiah has the vision where he encounters the Lord on his throne, and what is his response? Woe is me, I am undone. He's instantly humbled because he is now face-to-face -face with God and his response to God is humility. Another one of the Puritans named John Flavel puts it like this. He says, They that know God will be humble and they that know themselves cannot be proud. Let me ask you, do you know yourself? Do you know how evil and wicked this heart is and how quickly you can justify things and, and put up barriers against other people because of your pride? Do, do you know yourself? And do you know God? Why should the Lord be praised for condemning the arrogant and proud? Why should we praise Him for that? It's because the proud are the most anti-God, which means they're the most anti-good. 
They don't want good because they don't want God. To be a proud person is to be a self-worshipping person, which is robbing God of his rightful, uh, rightful praise and worship. His patience with the proud, it will one day end, as we are seeing in chapter 24 and chapter 25, it will one day end and they will finally come face to face with the one that should be honored, should be praised. So what should we do now? I think we should praise him for condemning the proud heart, the prideful people, the arrogant. Why? Because he's keeping heaven pure. It's my prayer that there's at least one of these four in which you can grab onto this morning and praise God about. With a deeper and clearer understanding of, of God, it, it should enlighten us to really see his eternal beauty and really how good he is, how perfect he is. It should also help us to reflect upon who we really are in light of him. Having a chapter 6 moment as we, as we look upon the throne of God going, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of an unclean lip. God, I, I don't deserve to be in your presence. We'll be humble this morning. Will we praise God for the carrying out of his plans? Will we praise God for his converting of the nations? Will we praise God for consuming death? Will we praise God for his condemning of the arrogant? Let me give you just a few moments to contemplate and reflect upon these things. If, if you want to get up and move and pray in a different place, in a different posture, we encourage you to do so. If you want to pray with somebody else and, and praise God about these things, and I encourage you to do that as well. Follow the Spirit's leading this morning. I'm going to give you just a few moments. I'll pray. We'll sing one final song. We'll be dismissed.